Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hi. And Jenna Ipkar. Hey. Hey. Today we're going to talk to John D'Amico about his new film, Green Brothers, that he just finished shooting. Insert applause. Yeah. I'll put that in, in post. We'll have lots of rip-roaring applause <laughs> for John D'Amico. So we're going to find out all about that, and then we'll do, you know, the old mailbag, answer some questions later on. But first, right off the bat, what can you tell us about the film? Well, I've been working on this one for a while. The script's been kicking around for a couple of years, and finally I had the things lined up and I had the opportunity to do it, so we started shooting... Uh, late August, no, late September, and went through right up to about the end of October. It's a crime thriller type of deal. Mostly shot up in the Bronx with interiors just sort of scattered around the city. But it's uh, it's about these two brothers, the Green brothers, Lee and William Green, who uh, have been estranged since they were teenagers because they uh, didn't get along when they were kids. And uh, William got sent to live with his grandfather. And uh, 10 years later, the time the story takes place, uh, their parents die. So they uh, reunite in the city for the first time in like a decade. And Lee learns that William is falling into kind of a bad criminal enterprise. Pretty much the gist of it. So you shot, you shot in the Bronx. You kind of scoped it out for a while. You were like finding really interesting spots. Yeah, I mean, I used to um, I used to live up there, and one of the producers uh, lived up there in Queens pretty much his whole life. So, um, and actually, the DP and uh, one of the pro- other producers and a, a handful of us were kind of in and out of there, either through school or just you know life. So we all sort of knew the area. Uh, mostly, we shot around the uh, Arthur Avenue area because um, it's just so interesting looking up there, and nobody's shooting there. And the thing about the Bronx, a big part of the reason I wanted to shoot there, aside from the fact that it was the best place for the story, and it was where I knew, is that it has the most Art Deco buildings of any city, I think, in the world. Damn. Yeah. Because it, like, came of age in the 30s, and then nobody ever built anything there after the 30s. Yeah, it was fancy. It was like a, a real upscale neighborhood for, for a while there, and then it promptly crashed and burned. Well, what happened was, I mean, the Grand Concourse was just a stretch of really beautiful places. It wasn't really fancy. It was working class always, but it was like nice working class until they started cutting it up with the um, with the stupid uh, highways and everything. And that really, that tore apart a lot of the neighborhoods. And when cracks started to go into it and this, when the city started to crumble, the Bronx really got the worst of it just because of where it is. So um, it has this reputation now for what it was like in, say, 1978, when it was literally on fire because they, they were, uh, the landlords were burning the buildings to get the uh, insurance claims. But it's not, it's not like that anymore. It's, it's a place now that went through this absolute crucible and nobody helped it. And all of the improvement, which there's been a lot of it, all of the improvement has come internally. In the Bronx, it's been no, I mean, none of the mayors have cared about it and it's, there's, there's no attention to it in any way, except in a, in a negative capacity. 
which is weird to me because when you look at it on paper, it should be doing the best of everywhere in the city. It's the one connected to the mainland. It has Yankee Stadium. It has an incredible amount of parkland. It has by far the best buildings except for Manhattan. But um, just nobody cared about it. So everything that's happened in there has happened in this weird little like island in New York, which is just a big draw to me. I find that just such an interesting... Yeah, it's cinematic. It's, yeah. it's one of those instantly uh, film-feeling kind of vibes. And it's, it's definitely, it's so New York. I noticed on your Facebook page for uh, this movie, you had a quote from Gil Scott Heron. Yeah. And I mean, he, I think he grew up in the Bronx, right? And his, he, he moved there he as was, a teenager. I think he was Harlem. Oh, but, okay. I mean, maybe. But, but he, as a, as a person, to me, still represents New York. You, you know, as you were saying, it's funny how the 70s still really represents New York. And I think because there were so many movies at the time, yeah. that were wonderful classic films that took place in New York in the 70s. And his, like, Gil Scott Heron, just his music reminds me. Like, I can't listen to The Bottle without picturing his music video for that, which was just, like, shots in New York. Yeah. You know? No, yeah, it's Washington Heights kind of has the same thing, where Washington Heights isn't really what it was. But any of those uptown places, you kind of, people just remember them from, you know, the late 70s into the early 80s, the sort of invention of hip-hop era, when I guess it was the only time they had any attention on them, but... I mean, it's just, it's such an interesting world uptown because it's really, um, in theory, you can get anywhere, but in practice, you're pretty much, you're on your own up there. And it's so overlooked. I was trying to think of movies that, that even took place in the Bronx. And I guess there 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 are a couple. I, the one I could think of the uh, most readily was Gloria uh, by Cassavetes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a good beautiful one. movie. Which is a wonderful movie. Yeah. And definitely, I think, also showcases the Bronx for sort of how it feels and looks and yeah, really uses I, that. But I, for years, even before this project, was trying to track down all the stuff I could that was um, shot up there just because, like you said, there's just not a lot of it. So there's uh, Marty, the, the Chayefsky uh, teleplay. Oh. Was, uh, that's set in the Bronx, which is interesting because Chayefsky was, uh, he was from the Bronx and he was part of this wave of like... Jewish immigrant geniuses that all came out of the Bronx, probably twenties to the forties. They, you know, they came of age in the forties ish and it was, it was him and Kubrick and, um, the guy who wrote the Shakespeare books, um, Shakespeare and the invention of the human, Harold Bloom, all those guys, they're all, um, Bronx born and Bronx raised, but they're not, uh, I think when you hit a certain level of talent, you're no longer associated with it. Hmm. It's this weird, like, reverse Gil Scott Heron thing. For some reason, everybody thinks Kubrick's from England. He's not from England. He was born in the Bronx, and most of his early and great stuff was was filmed in New York live. So, yeah, the the Chayefsky one, uh, Marty, is a good Bronx one. There's a movie called The Wanderers from 79 with uh, Stallone and Henry Winkler. And it's actually, I think it's how Henry Winkler got cast as the Fonz. Because he's pretty much playing the same guy. That's kind of like a sister film to Lords of Flatbush, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, they're similar. Uh, I might even be mixing them up. But The Wanderers is uh, it's Flatbush's Lords of Flatbush is Brooklyn, and uh, The Wanderers is it's Arthur Avenue, it's Belmont area in the fifties, in the time of like Dion and the Belmonts, and it's kind of interesting because it's actually surprisingly accurate. 
like there's this part where there's a street gang, the Fordham Baldies, who all had shaved heads, mm. and they're roaming around and they all get drunk and they go to a little army recruiting place and um, all enlist and all get sent to Vietnam. And it's just this like two minute thing in the movie, but apparently that actually happened. That was the uh, recruiting post on um, Grand Concourse in Fordham. That was like a real thing. They just all got drunk one night and wound up in Vietnam, at least from the stories I've heard. So there's there's some stuff, and it all has this sort of like oral tradition of um, you know people who know it well. Like Bronx Tale is another one that really came out of the Bronx and then came back into the Bronx. You know that everybody responsible for that knew that area very well. Beautiful movie. Yeah. Yeah, that one's really accurate visually too. Yeah, as well. the shots when he's he's driving the bus are just ridiculous. I mean, the cinematography in that movie is incredible. Yeah, that's a wonderful movie all around. People forget about that one a little bit. I think because it was like right around the time of Goodfellas. Yeah, it's, it's such a good movie. Yeah, I mean it's it's not Goodfellas level, but it's like uh, it's a hair away. I yeah, mean, it's, it's it's incredible. It's close. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Naked City, which is a show from the '60s that I'm always telling people to watch yep. for. So many reasons. Naked City did a handful of episodes that they shot up there. And those are real interesting because you can see the transition. Because around, uh, that was the early 60s. So around that time was sort of the end of the uh, golden age of the Bronx, where it was sort of like a nice working class neighborhood and the beginning of its decline. So you could see like the cracks begin to show in the the structure of those communities. I remember I sat in... uh on a little session you're having just going over like the visual style that you were looking for with the film. You're just playing like little clips and everything. I remember you looked at Killer's Kiss, which is just gorgeous movie. Oh yeah. Killer's Kiss is stunning. Killer's Kiss, when I watched it, it for about a half a minute I wanted to make Green Brothers in black and white just because of Killer's Kiss. Yeah. We didn't, but you know, it's one of those movies that has that kind of impact that you just want to do. Well I just remember we were going through like all sorts of clips from a whole mess of movies that night. It was you and it was uh, the DP and uh, one of the producers, a couple other guys. And you were just, you know, communicating what kind of vibes you wanted. And right when like Killer's Kiss went on, you know, we'd watched a bunch of stuff and we were just watching it casually. Like everybody was just glued to it. Even when we were watching scenes out of context with like what had happened before, we were just like, it, it's it's told visually so well that you can just jump in at any point with that movie and that's yeah that grabs movie, you. that movie is a masterpiece that that's a cool one too because it's a side of Kubrick that you don't really get to see which is this sort of run and gun side you know he's such in his his major works he's such a um, precise filmmaker that you forget how good he could be when it was just him, if you see the behind the scenes pictures of Killer's Kiss, it's literally him with a little 16 millimeter camera just holding it himself. Mm. And he's standing, you know, like on ledges, on bedposts, just trying to get the angle. And, you know, they're shooting off windowsills and roofs. And there's all this just sort of like really active, really um, location specific photography in that movie that um, it's, it's, it almost makes you wish Kubrick had stayed in the minor leagues for a little longer because it's such a. Yeah, I could Unique use like film. five of those. Yeah, yeah. Five of those and like five of uh, The Killings. Mm-hmm. Well, The Killing is killing's my favorite of his. That's the one that like, I don't know, I, I love so many of his films, but there's a grueling aspect to so many of them where it's like, if you're going to sit down with it, you really have to like sit down with it. But like The Killing, if somebody mentioned The Killing right now, I'd be like, yeah, let's watch The Killing. 
any time of day. Like that's just one that I would always be excited for. Yeah, I would say the same with Killer's Kiss. Yeah, Killer's I mean those Kiss, two, they do yeah. go hand in hand, and it's good that you know it sucks that Killer's Kiss doesn't have its own Criterion release because it yeah surely it's an extra it. feature on the uh, the Killer the, DVD yeah just a little bonus feature which of all the bonus features in the world that's probably the greatest bonus feature <laughs> of all time to get a beautiful full film as your bonus feature but you know it'd be great to have its its own due you know yeah that one that was a big one for us and also um not just naked city the tv show but naked city the photography book by ouija that uh that was a big one just those like because it has that same sort of atmosphere as killer's kiss where you feel like somebody just picked up a camera at three in the morning and went out and found something to photograph right and even if that's not what these things really are, that that feeling that they are is so striking. What were your hours shooting? Were you shooting pretty early at any point? Or what were your kind of like golden times of shooting? We did a lot of night stuff. It was a lot of uh, the, the earliest ones, to be honest, were the interiors, just because we had to get to our locations real early. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it's if you had to sort of look at it as a time of day, I would say a good good chunk of this movie takes place at night. And at that sort of just like twilight kind of hour. And so you're done shooting everything now? Uh, principal's done. Yeah. We're doing a little bit of B-roll, a little bit of odds and ends, getting um, you know specific close-ups. Are you, have that. you started cutting stuff together? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've been cutting. I'm cutting it myself, at least the first pass of it. Yeah. And uh, it should be another maybe two weeks until I have a, a temp cut. So this is your first feature film, right? No. Oh, really? This is my second. This is my first one that uh, I have a crew on. Ah. I did one in 2011 that uh, I also did it up in the Bronx, actually. That one was, uh, it was called The Calm. That was pretty much just me with a camera. That was a lot of waking up at 5 a.m. Because that was, I wanted to do like a feature length Twilight Zone. So the whole premise is three people wake up and New York City is deserted and they don't know why. And it just sort of studies what happens. And the thing about the Bronx is, there's all these really big streets that are kind of empty a lot of the time. So if you just get there at the right hour of the morning, it really looks kind of like the end of the world. So that one, uh, I did that. I think I finished that one around maybe the end of 2011. And I had, uh, I put in a lot of music for that one that I couldn't afford to buy and couldn't see the movie without. So I ended up not really doing much with that, just sort of doing private showings of it. Yeah, so it's like a stalemate with the music, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and it was um, it was just smaller in scope than this one. This one's a lot bigger than anything I've done before. This is It's a big cast. It's a big production. There's a lot of things. <laughs> so where'd you find, uh, where'd you find, let's say, your actors? Let's tackle that first. Uh, backstage. Just posted a listing on Backstage, and we ran two days of audition at uh, Champion Studios in Midtown, and a lot of people came. It was great. Um, we got our first choice for every single role, so nice. it's a, a wonderful cast. Yeah, the that's, cast is, that's a dream. Yeah, I mean, they're unreal. They're, it, it ended up becoming, which it wasn't intended to be, a lot of improvised stuff because I would just sort of put the camera down and then at the end of the scene, I wouldn't call cut sometimes. Just I just wanted to see what happened because they were all so good that they had so much life in them that, you know, you could scenes would start happening that weren't even in the script. They just 
they just lived it. Yeah, they were fantastic. And they were they were good to go, basically, it seems like, because you, you started not too long after that. that. Yeah. That always sucks when, like, you find somebody and then it's like, all right, well, maybe in a year if we have the money or this, that, and the other. But you were just, you just went right into it, pretty much. Yeah, I don't know any other way to do it than that. Anytime I've tried to do a project where it's sort of, you build a little bit over the course of months and months and months. I mean, I know people who do that successfully, but anytime I've tried to do that, it's it's just fallen through for me. So when I when I saw the sort of opening in my life where I could do it, I kind of just ran for broke. And it actually turned out really well. Everything kind of fell into place. That's great. Yeah, it was a very lucky production. I was surprised. So there were no uh, unforeseen uh, issues or anything. I, I was wondering, like, what was the difference? You know, you said before you had, it was you and a camera and three people, and now you had a whole crew. Did you run into anything difficult or you thought it was actually like, Pretty great. We had some trouble with some of the locations. Um, some of the deals would fall through, or you know, you'd get to the location and the sound was a problem. We had a uh, we had a lot of problems with planes, which I think is just a problem if you're shooting in New York. Yeah, you're just always going to have planes overhead. But other than that, sort of those end up being producer problems. You know, those are those are office problems. As far as on set, you know, like director problems. No, everybody was a goddamn dream. It's a lot easier, I realize, to do it with a bunch of people, which makes sense. But, you know, you kind of have to learn that the hard way. It's just, you know, you you, you can sit back and, and watch it a little more and you can have more of like a God's eye view of what's what's in the scene. Because the trouble with doing it by yourself, I think I think everybody should make a movie. Anybody who wants to be a director should make a movie that they shoot themselves and it plan to never release it, but just make it to do it. Because you'll realize the limitations of craning your eye through the lens to try to get everything. And it's sort of nice to be able to just, you know, like see the room while you're shooting. So where did you find your crew? How'd you assemble that? Uh, some of them I knew. Most of them I knew. Some of them were referrals from friends. Uh, and the sound man was uh, backstage. Or no, that was a Mandy posting. And I think makeup was a Mandy posting as well. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of problems shooting in New York, but the one thing that's really a dream is it's very easy to find talented people. Yeah. It's like to do the bare minimum of legwork to get them. And it's a weird thing too, because it's like everybody's off doing their own thing, but then you just kind of grab into another pool and you, you can find the people that you need for your projects. It doesn't take much to just kind of Grab well, from another pool. I remember us talking about that almost a year ago. Yeah. That this, the thing about New York filmmaking is when you look at it historically, it feels like, you know, there were these huge networks and, you know, like everybody in the 80s knew everybody in the 80s and they all lived next to each other and they all made films together and it was like a big thing. And I, I get frustrated because I feel like that's not still viable it does feel like what you're saying that everybody's there's a lot of talent, but it's in you know individual orbits and it's very fragmented. But I wonder if maybe that's just how it always was. It could be, yeah. I don't, re- yeah. I would love to just sit down with like a Hal Hartley or even like Steve Buscemi and just like figure out what that looked like back in say the '80s, yeah. Or even you know like the Circle in the Square days. Like how much did all those guys who were doing theater together in the '60s did they? really know each other that well, you know, like Hoffman and, and James Earl Jones and all them. Mm. It's it's a weird tradition, but it, it feels like it's at the very least moved off of Manhattan now. You know, you don't you don't find filmmakers in Manhattan now. You gotta go to Brooklyn or Queens to 
to get him. So maybe that's part of that just diaspora of talent. Because the rent's too damn high. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's like a silly thing to say, but it's also a huge problem for the arts because you can no longer have like a community where a lot of artists live. Yeah. You know, it'll happen and then it'll turn to shit. Like the, it happened to the village or I mean the Lower East Side and then it they all became real estate millionaires and it fell apart. And then it happened to Williamsburg again. Yeah, I keep hearing people saying, oh, Bushwick is the new art neighborhood. But the truth is, I don't I can't think of anything that's come out of Bushwick. Yeah. Sort of bars, you know. Yeah, I don't I don't fall into that like that lie of enough people doing one thing in an area makes it a thing. Like that's I think that's what's happening with Bushwick is like a lot of people are doing stuff, but what are they really doing? You know, they're doing stuff in like lofts, like their own little shows like that. But is that really a movement? Is that really something big? Like is are are they all saying enough of a thing that it's a it's a thing unto it itself? I hope it's at least the beginning of one. My friend made a uh, very good movie. He shot in Bushwick. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a great example of it actually. Yeah, that into one, something. Yeah, yeah, Rover that I did a review for the site. He uh, he was uh, living in an abandoned church at the time, so he shot a movie in the church right before the uh, city had it demolished. It's a beautiful little movie. It really was. It was. I was very impressed with that. But I I don't I don't know. It feels like. It's not quite as um, cohesive a group as it should be, New York filmmaking. Mm. It's one of those things where, like, once you start being on the internet and making friends on the internet, you start finding, like, people all over the world that think pretty similarly to you on, like, these very certain things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to find in your own area. So there's, like, that, that great addictive aspect of, like, us finding, you know, smug film people in England or wherever in Canada that we love hooking up with and having write and talk to about movies and everything. And then when you go back to the reality of, let's say, your community or if you're in New York City, you know, that's a huge thing. But let's say you're in some small town, then you're back to just wherever your friends are at with what they're doing. And it, it doesn't have as much allure as talking to people that are right on your level. So you think there's no uh, incentive to have sort of a local network now that you can have a global one? That's kind of interesting. I hope I hope that's not true, but it might be. I think it's that the the global aspect speeds it up because you find the people that you don't have to then bring to your level with what you're thinking about. Like they're just there right away. And so it's like almost like a shorthand. It's like uh, you just hit the ground running. Whereas, you know, here, let's say you might find people that are excited about film, but then you have to get them to where your headspace is at. Whereas if you're grabbing from the entire world as your pool, you can find people a little easier that way. I don't quite agree. I don't really feel any need to get anybody where my headspace is at. But um, that's like, that's a daunting worry because I'm a big fan, even just in a historical sense of like local and regional film. I think it's maybe the single most undervalued aspect of filmmaking. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it used to be, you know, you would, uh, we, we did an episode about yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's the time capsule aspect of yeah. the whole thing, yeah. And there used to be a ton of just like movies that people in Mississippi made and, you know, just guys down in Florida made. And, and I'm sure it still happens, but, you know, now that there's no there's no drive-ins and they really don't play movies on TV anymore. It feels like you've lost a venue to just sort of 
uncover something that personal. Yeah, you're but not going to see it. It's it it gets relegated to home movie status. Yeah, I, I just hope that sort of global network doesn't cut off that local network. You know, I hope like filmmakers in St. Louis don't stop finding each other and working together because they can find a filmmaker in you know Edinburgh who's a little closer to their uh, perspective. Because we we need we don't need any more films in LA and we don't need any more films in Toronto. And to an extent, well, that's for sure, yeah. we don't need any more films in New York in the sense that, in the sense of Brooklyn and Manhattan, though we definitely need Staten Island films and we need Queens movies and we need Bronx movies, but you know, we need movies in Kentucky. And we need movies in, 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 uh, you know, Missouri. We need, we need Alaska movies. I'd love to see a, I'd love to see a Hawaii movie. And I hope people, because it's really, it's very hard, but it's not impossible. And it's more doable than it has ever been. So I, I just, I don't know where to find them, but I hope that we, uh, we still have those. Preach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good we have people like David Gordon Green, too, who, you know, went off and did a bunch of Hollywood stuff and then sort of came back to the local film roots that he started with, with you know, doing Prince Avalanche, which yeah. I didn't really like, but I'm glad that he did it. And uh, Joe, which is actually great. Yeah. And to the extent that I could, I wanted to sort of be uh, a part of that. You know, we got uh, one of our associate producer. Um, he's from uh, the Bronx, from the Arthur Avenue area. And he, he's lived there, I think, 50 years. And we, he, he was a big part of um, just sort of making sure that we were honest to the day-to-day spirit of that place, which is a very specific uh, location. It's very, it has a character that you do not find anywhere else that I'm aware of, because, you know, all places of interest have that sort of character that you don't find anywhere else. And, and it, it's almost your duty to the locations to be true to that. So we tried to, we tried to keep it in that sort of, that local spirit, that uh, New York tradition, I guess you could call it. I think all these people end up just sort of moving to the big cities, you know, like because that's kind of just what you're meant to do, you know, like, but they, they don't ever move back and they don't ever look back, unfortunately, when they don't realize that there is a lot that is uncovered and unknown about, you know, middle America or the South or Northeast. I guess you could do it in the cities too. You just got to be honest to it, you know? I mean, like there really is a wealth of stories in New York that aren't being told. You know, there's there's so many stories in Washington Heights that aren't, aren't being told or like cast the net a little bit wider and, you know, like Newark. I mean, I'm dying to see a great Newark movie. What an unreal location that is and what, a, what an amazing history that is. And Queens, you know, like Middle Village is such, such a unique atmosphere to it that um, it gets crushed down when all you see from New York is shot on Court Street in Brooklyn or in, uh, in like Madison Square Park. And it's easier than you think. It's super hard. We shot in every borough except Staten Island, and we also shot in Long Island, New Jersey. And it is so unbelievably hard to shoot where people are shooting. Like, it's so difficult to shoot in Brooklyn. People are so shitty about it, and it's just, there's no space People will cut through your shots. People are loud. People will ruin your shots just for the hell of it. And and it's just like aggressively anti-creation. And then you shoot somewhere like in the Bronx where people are a little more afraid of, but 
it's it, it was a dream shooting up there. And it was a dream shooting out in Queens, too. We went out a ways into Queens, and it was just wonderful shooting there. Hoboken was wonderful to shoot at. You, you just got to... I just really want filmmakers on my level to just sort of go for home, you know, and to go for neighborhoods and to not go for this these um, locations that are just done to goddamn death. Yeah. We can bring back a lot of that 70s filmmaking as far as I'm concerned, you know, the character-based, uh, location-based movies instead of the grandiose dream plots of superheroes and mecha warriors and etc. Yeah. Or like just a good solid sci-fi that has like a real point about the life we already live in. Well, under under the skin would probably be a good example of something that went sci-fi but kept it kind of local. Oh yeah, definitely. That, yeah, that was a wonderful movie. And that was really uh like the technique of that is really cool cuz you can do a big movie with Scarlett Johansson now and you can shoot it the same way you know, like Cassavetes would have shot it. Right. You have the you have the ability now. It, it, that fidelity is there. Like those shots in the car, where um, it's a hidden camera, but it if you're not told it is, you know, it it doesn't look like a hidden camera. It's a beautiful shot, and it it's there's so much life in those frames. Yeah, I liked Under the Skin a lot. So what'd you what'd you shoot it on? We used a five uh, D Mark three with a uh, fig rig. Which oh, the nice. fig rig was really cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great that's a great piece of hardware. For those who don't know what it is, it's basically like a uh, steering wheel with a camera in the center, and you kind of hold it like you'd be holding a steering wheel, or you can hold it in you know different variations of like twelve and three or nine and three or however you want to do it. Yeah, because the the challenge of a DSLR is it's such a small camera, and there's no real way to hold it without. Having that, if you want to do handheld, there's no way to hold it without having that really tremulous shake of a human hands. Whereas opposed to say like a larger, like a like an old classic over the shoulder camera, when you're doing handheld stuff with that, it's not literally held in a hand, so it's a little steadier. Right. So with DSLR, you can you can see it a lot in sort of um, indie films in the mumblecore stuff. You can see that those shots really just go all over the place. So the challenge is you have to change the center of gravity in those things. So the fig rig just makes it a larger apparatus. Yeah. So you have all the freedom that you do with a DSLR as opposed to a shoulder mount where you can move it in any dimension in space as much as you want, but it's just, it doesn't quiver. Yeah. And you're not adding much weight. You're just adding sort of simulated weight. It's a little heavier than I was expecting it, it? to be honest. Yeah, but not much. The ones I've seen are usually like PVC, like DIY ones. So yeah, we used the uh, the actual. Oh, nice. Figus fig one. How heavy is it? It's uh maybe ten pounds. Oh, okay. It's not heavy, but it's a little more. Because yeah, I was expecting something that was like almost weightless, right. but it's not. It's it's a uh, it's a big thing. It was uh it was invented by Mike Figus, the director who uh is sort of like one of the icons of digital filmmaking. He's been exploring that for forever. He did the, that movie Time Code in 2000 where he shot four feature-length shots following four cam- characters and then superimposed them together in one frame and then they, they kind of cross paths. And he's so probably he's, best known for uh, Leaving Las Vegas with uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he's got an interesting long career. But yeah, this was this was a great piece of equipment. So we used that. We had a we had a shoulder mount and all sorts of 
fun toys. We did mostly, we used uh, telephoto lenses as opposed to primes because I wanted that um, sort of moneyness you get with them. I think the trouble with primes is everything you shoot on prime lenses ends up looking like upstream color. It's all very defined and very um, picturesque. So we used uh, we used a bunch of telephotos to just sort of dirty up the look a little bit. Was there much like distortion with the telephoto or was it pretty straight? Uh, if we cracked the thing out uh, all the way wide, it got a little Wonky. bent in the middle. So we just didn't do that that much unless we wanted that look. And for sound, did you do like the zoom H4N? No, we had a... Uh, we. We had a, a pretty sizable uh, sound kit with a preamp, and uh, we had laughs on everybody and a boom. And oh, it nice. Was, uh, yeah. And you had a designated guy for that, right? Uh, yeah, really good guy. Uh, Franklin Vaughn. Very cool. talented guy. It's always hard finding good sound guys, man. Yeah. Yeah, this guy was good. Doesn't like planes. Doesn't like when planes <laughs> come into the frame. They never do. I wonder why. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, we emphasized sound as much as we could, because my line of thinking is... Uh, you know, you can you can have sound so bad that it'll burst someone's eardrums, but you can't have a shot so bad it'll blow up somebody's eyeballs. <laughs> and I feel like if you need just like a rule of thumb yeah. for what to prioritize, that is my suggested rule. Yeah, sound is key, man. You cannot argue with bad sound. It is that is a physiological it's like the problem. it's like the uncanny valley visually but for your ears almost like bad sound it's just it just grates on your soul yeah it, it, could, it can look beautiful but if it has bad sound i'm out exactly. yeah because you can't there's nothing you can do to invest in it your body is just fighting it it's like trying to watch the movie when you're standing in just a little bit of fire just like <laughs> the tiniest bit that's why this podcast sounds so great because we put a value on sound well when i stand next to the mic it does yeah that always helps. <laughs> I don't like the mic. Yeah, John D'Amico, not a big fan on wearing headphones, not a big fan on using the mic properly. I think if anybody goes back to some of the older podcasts before it was cracked down, you can hear me sort of like disappear in and out of yeah. phrases because I'm moving my head a lot. I had to learn to not move my head. He basically things. needs one of those headsets with a microphone on it, except he wouldn't wear it because he doesn't like the uh, the headphone aspect. Yeah, there's no one in. He he's, needs, like a, he's like a dog in a shower, you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe a cat. He needs just the mic part of the headset. Just the just some piece of uh, whatever. Yeah, I should do this just head. eight mile style. I should just hold the mic. <laughs> yeah. So you can drop it periodically. Yeah. Yep. All right. We will be right back with some questions from the mailbag. See you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have listened this far into this episode, chances are you are a fan of Smug Film. And if you're a fan of Smug Film, you should become a member of Smug Film Club because you're missing out on some great stuff that you could be enjoying. Smug Film Club is our online mailing list. We're not going to email you when an episode goes up. We're not going to email you when an article goes up on the site. The only time we're going to email you is when we have a free gift for you. These gifts include... Bonus podcast episodes that will never be on iTunes or anywhere else. The only way to get them is by becoming a member of Smug Film Club for free. When you sign up, you will get our best of 2014 podcast episode where we talk about all our favorite films of 2014. 
And you can only get that by being a Smug Film Club member. So go to smugfilm.com slash club and put in your first name, last name, and email address. You'll get that episode right away. And you'll get all sorts of other fun stuff every month. Enjoy. And now back to the show. All right, Crystal asks, Do you have a favorite video game movie adaptation? Why don't these ever seem to work, but book adaptations can? Is it the visual aspect of a video game that's too hard to translate? And are these too many questions? All right, so what are the good ones? Resident Evil was good. Pretty good, right? It was serviceable. uh, Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was a fun one. James Cameron, huge fan of that one. Admitted that on Reddit not too long ago. All right, so what what made that one work? Let's tackle that as an example. Fast-paced. Yeah. Unpretentious. Yeah, that's a good point. It's an interesting one to look at because it's nothing like the game. The Romero version they wanted to do before they fired Romero was probably more like the game. It was more of a haunted house thing. But uh, Anderson went for his skill sets, which was sort of like techno action fucking goofball fun. But it, it worked because there's a, there's an underlying structure to that um, story that you don't really have in most of the other ones. Like Doom was an okay movie and it pretty much looked a lot like Resident Evil and felt a lot like it. But the Doom video game was not a story-based piece of art. So it's it's like trying to adapt a song. Yeah. Resident Evil, it's like trying to adapt a, another movie. It really is. It's based around a um, clear story with a beginning, middle, and end that's told uh, cinematically. But a lot of the great games aren't. Something like, like Mario, which people fight over. Some people say it was a really good movie. Some people say it was a bad movie. It was I think just, it's a I think it's a great movie for what it is. I just think that the the problem people have getting around it is that they see the Mario characters and they expect something specific. I think if it had right. nothing to do with Mario, it would just be like this weird cult classic with like Dennis Hopper and shit. Right, but here's the question. What do they expect specifically? Because there is nothing specific in those games except the sort of visual structure and the a one sentence IMDB plot summary which is that he goes to the castle to save the princess there's nothing else in there other than that to make a movie from well they were probably weaned on like the cartoon version too cuz like there was a the TV cartoon version of Super Mario so they had that kind of expectation I didn't even film. know there was one of those you never watched that one no but um you know what i mean like like a, a video game like that isn't telling a story the way that, say, a book or a movie tells a story oh, where you begin with characters, one specific conflict, and their inner and outer attempts to resolve it. You don't have any of that in 99% of video games. You have, But games are kind of moving well, towards ga- that more. Games have emotions and like they have a feeling, which I think actually, you know, it, it was back to Crystal's question of how come they can do books and they can't get it right for video games they don't really get it right for books either in my opinion there's a couple of obviously great uh you know adaptations but for the most part all these movies that come out and i was thinking of harry potter the other day actually i like the books a lot the movies are terrible except for the third movie in which they just they made a real movie out of and they threw away a lot of book detail and they changed some stuff but they really kept the feeling of the book in my opinion and that's i think what what happens to these movies they get caught up in the plot and how much detail to put in how much well every time you know mario jumps on this he has to get a mushroom and the mushroom looks like this and fuck that you know just 
go right for how make Mario makes you feel. And and like I think that's what people really kind of wanted from it. Then that's probably the one thing that was like off about it is that it didn't the movie didn't capture the Mario feeling. It captured this really arbitrary feeling that was imposed, which was just this weird so other it's, movie. It's and everything just a was matter there. of art direction then. Yeah. I think there's so. nothing in a game but art direction. I fundamentally disagree with you that there's not a lot of good movies based on books. I think that's completely off base. And if you sat down and really looked at oh, the movies no. you liked, they're all bo- they're all them. based on books. Yeah, but, but I'm talking about like these these movies that have come out more specifically that are like these direct sort of uh, you know the the book was already a bestseller. Gone Girl, Our Fault in the Stars, the Twilight, very popular, Twilight, popular yeah. fiction adaptation, and the, none you know, of these events. are really good movies. They're they're they you know I mean that's uh, obviously arguable since they're getting good reviews and etc. But I mean I, not you know, all of them, but uh, they're yeah. they're well received by their audience. If I, not, I agree with you on that point. I, I don't think they're very good, but I I think. What's really kind of interesting is to look at how many good movies are based on novellas and short stories. Because if you look at the structure of a movie, it is way more in line with a novella or a short story. Exactly. Where you have one conflict that has to get resolved and it has to just move and be done. And that's why you look at um, even Apocalypse Now, as loose as it is, it really does follow the rubric of Heart of Darkness and it follows the beats of it very closely. And for example, I did a big thing studying Melville films, films based on Herman Melville, and there's never, ever been a good adaptation of Moby Dick, but there's been a flawless one of Billy Budd, which is very similar to Moby Dick, except it's like 90 pages. So you have this sort of like symbiosis in styles between those two art forms, and you have it to a lesser extent between the novel and the film, but a novel ultimately is bigger and more interiorized than a film could be. But a video game tells a story in almost no way similar, except on the barest, most facile, it has moving images terms than a movie. Right, it's all about the art direction connection to your emotions and then translating that same vibe on the screen and then basically plugging in whatever else you need because there's that's why sorry that's why there are so many like fan-made paintings and comic book versions right. of video games that people love because that sort of frozen still like an evocative image that you can sort of lose yourself in of a painting or or a drawing or a fucking comic book is much more in line with what a video game when they're good anyway tries to do Sort of the thing, though, is that I think video games on their own, the best video game movies have been these sort of horror game uh, movies like uh, like Resident Evil. I like Silent Hill a lot, even though it's it's dopey. It's completely a, a dumb movie. But yeah, that's probably on the, on the yeah. better side. And it was, it was video game movies. It included all the parts that, you know, it had a couple of cameos by the creepy characters. And then everyone, you know, it had that kind of feeling with the mist, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But they didn't try too hard for plots. Like, I can't imagine... I mean, there there have been like Final Fantasy movies, and I think they're terrible. But because everyone's trying so hard to cram all that detail of these like you know sprawling twelve hour games or yeah. however long they are, and it's like novels, you know that I think that what makes the novella movies so good is that it's more compact, and you also just it's about a feeling. It's not about the plot. It's not about the characters. You can throw all that crap you know out for the most part. The the short story is trying to just give you either like one picture in time or it's trying to just deliver a real a message real quick yeah. and emotionally. 
Yeah. And I think that's really what makes a great movie too, you know? And I, this is sort of like, I completely agree. And this is sort of like a crisis in like, to an extent that it exists, the video game community. Like I, I'll see all these things online where people are like bugging out because they're all these games, a, a ton of games now have like five hour cutscenes or whatever. And they're really trying to specifically become and are graded on their capacity to be cinematic. But like the more they try to be movies, the shittier they are as games, at least in my not really that interested in, the, in them estimation of them. Like the, the, the games that work best and the ones that trickle down to, to what I hear about are the ones that are, are, are lost in this sort of like primal, like image-based, moment-based, movement-based kind of storytelling as opposed to a, a purely narrative-based cinematic approach. And it's a shame that they're they're almost throwing that ability and that um, virtue of theirs aside to be more like a medium that they are nothing like. Yeah, I mean, when I pick up a game, you know, I, I rarely play video games, but when I pick up a game, it's a game that I can just get right into and start playing, whether it be like me playing Dr. Mario on NES and just you turn it on and you're in it and you're just playing something very simple or like I bought Grand Theft Auto Five, and I don't, I don't think I did more than maybe one or two missions. I just enjoyed it as a a, a taxi driving simulation. I was just <laughs> driving around making money, uh, yeah, and making in an your, honest way, making your fun. story out of it, right? Yeah, exactly. I do the same thing. I'll I'll get rid of the missions, and then as I play it, I just sort of the the character and the story isn't something that's imposed on me. It's something that I import into that world. Yeah. Which is something that you get in like paintings and maybe in a more abstract way in music, but you can't do that in the novel, the written word in general or film. It 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 can't be done. So it's the one thing that that the game medium has over everything else and they they seem to be uh they don't value it so highly anymore, I guess. I, I maybe they just don't have the critical underpinning to know to value it you know all the terms that they use to praise or damn video games are imported from the world of film right right they're all about camera and um visual sound this that and the other yeah yeah, and and um scenes you know they talk about cut scenes and all this stuff they should just throw all that shit away and start over with their own lexicon and see where it takes them there are a lot of indie games that are coming out that I honestly, I also like, you know, I, I used to be way more into it than I am now, but I hear about it, you know, from friends and et cetera. And it sounds like there are, that sort of thing does exist. Yeah. It's just being, it's being like repressed for whatever reason, or it's like just not, you know, I guess like the sort of the big magazines don't pick it up the same way. Like an indie movie doesn't get picked up by, you know, wide distribution. Except it seems so. more, um, the like, the sort of dividing line is is greater with games. It seems like it's like the AAA stuff, and then all the rest, all the the sort of homegrown versions of. It's not video too games. far from the state of film right now, though. Yeah, you know, you get the Avengers, and then you pray to God Skeleton Twins comes to your town. <laughs> you know, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, I guess it is pretty much the same. Well, then it sucks. Anyway, you slice it. <laughs> Conclusion: It sucks. Conclusion, Resident Evil's good. Yeah. Before we move on, is there any other, are there any other ones that we're missing besides Resident Evil? I feel like there's so many more and I can't remember them. 
Silent Hill. I like Silent Hill. I like House uh, of the Dead 2 was pretty sweet. I know that's a weird <laughs> sentence that probably that sentence has never been put together before, but House of the Dead 2, which I think was either a sci-fi pictures original or is just something that they picked up and ran with. What'd you like about it? It's um I mean it's what would have been the third movie on a drive-in bill in the 70s, <laughs> you know. It's probably the shoot was like 10 days. Right. You know, nobody is going into this movie, including the the crew, with any pressure to really, you know, make it something special. So it's very, it's like weirdly casual. And it's about these, uh, it's about like zombies on a college campus and this like crew that comes in to kill them. But it's, it's like, it's almost like a hangout movie because it's low, it's so low stress and it's, it's like goofy. I got to check that one out. It's, uh, yeah, it's a good one to put on in the background, you know? Yeah, I like the I like the Mortal Kombat's the one and two. I think they're they're terrible in this exuberant way that makes it them a better you know adaptation than something if you had taken it so seriously. You know, they're, yeah, I think I, it's almost to to a movie's benefit to not be a great movie if it's going to be a video game adaptation because it's just a it's a different enjoyment factor. You know, I would love to see a movie version of Zork. Which well, I yeah. think has so much potential. All those adventure games, all those old yeah. Zork. It, it was, was like a text, text adventure, yeah. yeah. That's cool. It was good. And it was funny. And they had so many different versions of it as a game. And it, it did get a little more cinematic eventually. And it was always just funny. I mean, you there's, you know, they can throw out the difficulty and head banging into a wall aspect of it in the yeah. movie. But. Well, um, there, there was a great Indiana Jones computer game, Fate of Atlantis. Which had oh such, that was cool. It had such a better story than Kingdom of the Skull, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and it's such a shame that that never became a movie because it was about like him finding like the lost city of Atlantis and everything. And it was just like a very for like a video game. It, it was a very cinematic, well thought out, plausible other Indiana Jones adventure. See, you're doing exactly what I was saying. You're describing it in terms that you would describe a movie. But it was a great That's game really too. Interesting. It was a great game too. That's really interesting. That was a lot of I fun. I liked that one. I liked Tie Fighter and uh, X Wing, and they were those ones where you didn't get a you got a setting, and you had the sort of background in your head of all the Star Wars stuff. But the the story of your guy came, you know, as you moved through it. Right. And I also I made my case in an article why there's room to make a great Doom movie if you do it great. Exactly. Yeah, and that's. Pretty much all art direction. Yeah. Kind of lay it out. They just kind of drop the ball in that department. Yeah. If anybody missed it, I, I wrote an article some months ago about um, the Doom film with The Rock, and which was like pretty sweet. But um, if you look at it, it's very boring looking. It looks like shitty version of Event Horizon. It's just, you know, silver walls and silver floors and silver doors. And uh, if you look at Doom the game... I mean, that is an insane world they built. There's, uh, you know, like you'll walk into these rooms that are like wallpapered with human flesh and just the weirdest, like the the way to open doors is you press these buttons that look like skulls. And there's just all this great techno devil imagery in them. If you're going to adapt it, which I heard they want to do again. And stuff that really lends itself to like practical effects too. Stuff that's very tactile, like a door or a knob. You know, that sort of thing that could really just elevate it. Yeah. I'd love to see like Clive Barker do Doom. Yeah. All right. So next question is, what duty 
if any, do sequels and remakes owe to the original film? And that question's from Brad. I don't think a remake really owes anything to the original film. That's why you want to see something different. I mean, though, I guess remakes do get crap for not being like the the original but better. But I I would rather see something just different. It's like a cover of a song. I want to hear something fresh. I want a fresh take on it. You want to keep maybe some you know, that original melody, you know, that original like feeling that you get from the song, or if they could take it another, show you that same exact, uh, you know, plot dialogue characters and make you feel a totally different way. That's really interesting to me. Well, it's like the improv thing of yes. And I think there needs to be like sort of a yes. And quality, whether you're doing a sequel or a remake where it's like, yes, all of this, but we can also take this other added level to it or this other added direction, you know? For sequels, I agree. For a sequel, I want to see everything that I loved from the first one, but in a different Yeah, know, I guess I guess place. more for sequels <laughs> than, than remakes. You know what's interesting, though, about sequels? One of my favorite sequels, and I think, Cody, this might be one of yours, too, Son of Kong. I think we've talked about Son of Kong. It's, it's not a movie I would say that I think is a great movie, but it's one of the most... I, I would say the most interesting example of a sequel in film. Because history. what they do is, you know how every sequel, the the whole premise of the sequel is you do the first one but bigger? Kong does, Son of Kong does the first one but smaller. And then they essentially remade it as Mighty Joe Young a few years later. And then that right, does the same thing again. Which is an incredible movie. Oh, Mighty Joe Young is like a masterpiece. And it does the same thing. It just takes the King Kong story and just makes it smaller again. So... I mean, literally the ape shrinks in each movie, but also, you know, like the the confines of the story get smaller. You don't go to back and forth between Skull Island and New York. You just sort of lock into one location and the number of characters sort of uh, whittles down and the human story, especially Mighty Joe Young, the human story starts to pick up because Mighty Joe Young has better actors than either of the Kong movies. As you're explaining Son of Kong, it's almost like if you're doing a video game of King Kong, like a video game sequel to King Kong and you had to scale it down a lot. You know, it has this weird aspect halfway into the film where it becomes this very linear adventure of like, oh, you walk over here and then you encounter this and then you walk further and then yeah. you encounter this and it's very linear. And so Son of Kong is almost like the video game version of uh King Kong. Yeah. And Mighty Joe Young then becomes like the classic melodrama version. Yeah. It's the one where they invest in actors and um, they give it a human story that really actually works. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, I completely agree with both of you. And that's sort of my rule for sequels or remakes. They have to have, I think their only duty is they have to have some reason for being. They have to show you something in a way that it wasn't shown the first time. You know, like everybody loves... The Thing, the Carpenter one, which is a very good movie. I, I prefer the original. I prefer the 51 one. But the brilliant thing about the remake of The Thing is that it takes the, the skeleton of the first movie and of the, the short story it's based on, and it just starts to like, it, it like daydreams, you know? Like it, it, the whole thing is almost like, well, what if this went, you know, what if they went right here instead of left, you know? Just this like alternate approach to that story. I'm I am getting sick of um movie sequels and these trilogies that that treat movies more like television shows than like movies. Like as yeah. you said, I want I, yeah, I want something to to elevate or to 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 express in a different way that the first one didn't but still keep like something for it. I don't want just episode 2. Yeah, it's like they stretch out the drama over like 
a way long period of time. Like they did and with it's the Harry, po- Harry Potter movies and everything. Yeah, yeah or the Hobbit movies, which yeah. was that was a three hundred page children's book, <laughs> right? That they've turned into twelve hours of cinema. That's insane. You could read the book probably a couple times <laughs> the amount of time it takes to watch yeah. those films. I mean, that's just bizarre. That was so like blatantly dishonest. I mean, it, yeah, it was insulting. It's like really, it had to be another three film thing with extended editions and everything else and all that. And considering they did Lord of the Rings and all of those books being what, like at least uh, 300 pages or, or more and, and one movie. And th- I like those movies and even the extended cuts I thought were good and, and I wanted to watch them, but yeah, I agree. The Hobbit, like that's exactly like if I wanted to watch it on TV, I'd watch it on TV. And I don't have a problem with with serial television. But when I'm in a movie, that I do have certain expectations, and I don't know. It's just like I I don't li- I don't like going every year to go back to the same thing I watched a year ago, like The Hobbit. You know, yeah. like I want to finish it, fucking end it. <laughs> That's great. Like it has good aspects to it, but like don't stretch it out for three years yeah, and, and keep it the same note. There's just not that much content in that story yeah. to go that far. It's just, it's not there. So you, the, I mean, it's, it's like being in a waiting room for six years until the third movie <laughs> finally comes out. Yeah. yeah it's I mean, like the tantric sex of uh, <laughs> film, I guess. Well, the way I always put it is if the generation that was inspired by Star Wars made Star Wars... They would have saved the Death Star for the third movie. Yep. And nobody, there never would have been a third movie because the first movie wouldn't have had an ending. Yep. And it would have tanked. Yeah. So, I mean, sequels and and all that, you really, you can't make a film hoping to make a sequel because you hold back, you hold your punches. You have to, you have to clear the slate at the end of every film, you know, even, even some of the earlier superhero movies do it. The first Iron Man was really good about it. I mean, that movie burnt all its bridges by the yeah. end of that movie. It threw every punch it, it had. It seems like they felt so lucky to be able to do it. Yeah. Because it, it, was, it wasn't a character that people really cared about in the way that they care about like Batman or Superman. And Robert Downey Jr. at the time wasn't, you know, a hugely popular choice for the character. And John Favreau, not a hugely popular choice for a director. So everybody working on it was just like, all right, we have this awesome chance to do something really interesting and weird. Yeah. And it, the ending where he has that press conference and he says, I'm Iron Man. I mean, it's an ending to a movie. Exactly. It, right. it, it concludes the arc that they built into him in that film. And then it also just happened to be one that you could build on. But if you cut out the fucking Nick Fury shit at the very end, that's a complete beginning, middle, end story. Yeah. And they did that and they were still able to build all the Marvel skyscraper cinema on top of it which means that there's no excuse for anybody to hold back yeah you know if you could end iron man that way and still make those sequels if you could end the first star wars with blowing up the death star and still make two more there's no excuse to hold back because then you're then you're instantly more curious about like wait a second they're making another one because you feel like all right i'm going to be able to go on this fresh new roller coaster like I feel like I already went on this complete roller coaster. Now this one is going to have an ending that's as succinct as the other one. That's what you're hoping for when you hear about a sequel to something that ends so well. Well, more to the point, a it lot forces... of times it doesn't happen that way. But that's that's where your brain goes to because you remember the first one as such a complete story. It forces the filmmaker to raise the stakes of exactly. the next one as well. You know, you it's can like have... a kick in the ass. It challenges yeah. you. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes if all these movies that end with this like wink nod that oh there's gonna be a sequel. It's also like 
you know, going on a first date and being like, hey, nice to meet you. Uh, you know, my name's Jenna and uh, can't wait to, you know, you know, see you tomorrow. This date's going to go great. You know, like, who knows? <laughs> yeah, you know? it's presumptuous. It's as super hell. presumptuous. And it also, yeah, it gives them a chance to be lazy. They thought, oh, everyone's going to fucking love it anyhow. Let's just do whatever. And then yeah, we'll the do Ghost another Busters, one. And- the Ghostbusters yeah. 2 thing where they just remade the first movie as a sequel. Right. You know, which is a weird thing. I feel like there's a very sharp line between sequels and remakes. And I wonder if sometimes it isn't real. Because if you look at the plot of Ghostbusters 2, that's pretty much a remake. Right. And it doesn't follow the ending of Ghostbusters 1 where they're successes at all. So it's not a contiguous story. It's a separate story with the same characters again. Well, that's the corner you write yourself into when you end on the success then a they lot didn't of the write time, themselves into any corner. They just didn't have the balls to follow right, through. Right, but with pushing the they pushing had. your characters back, like down the stairs, you know, yeah, it, it's a problem you run into. Like if it's a happy ending and everything's great, then why should there even be a sequel? So then you have to kick them down again and have them. Well, they didn't climb have to up. do it. They didn't have to do it with Ghostbusters. I mean, they had a world where ghosts were trying to take over the world, and they had now a team of four people who were exactly supposed to fight it. I'm and saying then, that it's a it's a mistake. It's yeah, a, it's a problem that. Yeah, it's weird cowardice. And then what happens is you have sequels that become remakes for no reason. Whereas I would rather have remakes and sequels as separate entities with their own kind of reason for being, you know? I think horror is kind of, you get like a lot of little happy accidents with sequels with horror. Like I love what they did with Halloween 3. I I still think it was such a great idea to break from the monotony of, what Halloween unfortunately then became. And I love uh, I love the fourth uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. That one I really love. And I like that with horror, a lot of the times it's um, things aren't as nailed down as, you know, a director being carried over. It's not like with Don Coscarelli doing all the phantasms. Usually yeah. it's like, all right, the second one's another guy. Third one's another guy. Fourth one's another guy. So there's all these opportunities for something interesting to happen. You know, people get bogged down with like, the, oh, there's going to be another Jason or another Freddy or whatever. But it's not the same thing over and over again. I was just talking about this, about um, some of those slasher sequels that are like one of the most despised set of films in the world. Some of them are really cool. Yep. Like Friday the 13th 2 is so good. Way better than one, way better than any of the other ones. It's just this weirdly, like, it's a different director, and it's just this weirdly talented set of people. It has the best actress and the best director, and it just, like, it shouldn't exist as a movie, but it really is very good. And Six is really funny, and then, um, you know, like, some of the later ones, like, Return of the Living Dead 3 is such a good movie. And there's these weird, like, peaks in these long-running series that... um are kind of fascinating. Well, Leprechaun Back to the Hood, not the first Leprechaun in the Hood, that's the first Leprechaun movie since the first one that really nails something interesting where you're like, all right, this is a story. This is about a Leprechaun. I understand why the Leprechaun's like this. I understand why these people are like that. All the other ones, they're just total fucking messes. I mean, Leprechaun 4 in space is great just in its own little vibe. But the first Leprechaun movie and... The last Leprechaun movie before they did that fucking reboot that completely changed the idea of a Leprechaun into like this fucking like growling dog, essentially, which is total mistake. But those two movies that bookend the entire series, essentially, those are the ones that really 
got it right. And they were, you know, the case of completely different people working on both and finding the thing about them that works. And you wouldn't like in your right mind assume that, you know, Leprechaun back to the hood is going to be the succinct great one in the series. But that's why it's so much fun to go through horror series because you never know what you're going to get. Yeah, you wouldn't think Psycho 2 is good. And Psycho 2 is so good. You wouldn't think Exorcist 3 is good. And Exorcist 3 is like, there are moments in that movie that are among the best horror in probably the entire scope of the 1990s. You know, Exorcist 3 is really stunning. And uh, that's what I really like about the Alien series. You know, you have, it, it's, you almost take it for granted because there's so triple A, all those movies, but you have these four up and coming filmmakers mm-hmm. who are figuring out what stories they want to tell through through those two characters. Ripley it almost and the becomes aliens. an anthology film. Yeah, yeah, you know? they almost do. It's a giant version of just one of those yeah. anthology horror films. And like any anthology film, some of them, are better than others. Yeah, one of them okay. is total fucking bust. Yeah, and that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, there are other ones, you know? You don't get so bogged down and like, oh, it's this one, you know? It's all it's all part of a thing. It's, it's fun to watch movies that aren't great sometimes. It's fun to watch movies that drop the ball, sequels that drop the ball. Like, I love Nightmare on Elm Street 2. It's a terrible movie, but it fails in such a weird, specific way. That's the way. only one of that series that I have any interest in. I don't like any of those movies, but that is just one of the weirdest. It's so bizarre. Ofs. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. This next question is from Greg, Greg Deliso, our boy. He asks, why does anybody like the Rob Zombie Halloweens? And this kind of goes right into what we were talking about. I um I watched the first five, ten minutes of the of the his first one and I wasn't into it. But I hear Halloween two is great. I know you like both of them, right? Yeah, I like both of them a lot. Um they're very sloppy. And Halloween two in particular. Halloween two, I think with a, maybe an extra month of uh, script work on that movie and some slightly different casting, I think Halloween 2 could have been one of the best horror movies ever made. It's not that. But as it stands, it's a very good movie with a few moments that are just stunning. And I really like the Halloween movies for the reasons that a lot of Halloween fans don't, which is that they throw a lot away and they, they remold it all. Because the whole idea, the first one starts with like 20 minutes of um, Michael Myers as a kid. Yeah, that's what really just kicked me away from it. Well, I love that because, you know, I don't need another fucking movie about that Michael Myers. Mm. They're out there. There's enough of them. There's more than them. (laughs) So what I'm really interested in is seeing a filmmaker who grew up on Michael Myers make his Michael Myers movie. And it's very different. It's, It's really half Rob Zombie and half Rob Zombie's influences. So it's this weird sort of like personal version of Halloween. In the same one, I guess, that Carpenter's was. You know, it, it really feels like, you know, a singular film from one filmmaker. He is a very personal director. Yeah. He's... he's and if you don't like his vision, I mean, yeah. there's nothing you can do. That's and I sympathize I, with that. That's how I felt with all of his movies except for Lords of Salem, which I fucking adore which is, in my mind, the spring breakers of fucking horror movies. I love that fucking Devil's movie. Devil's Rejects is the spring breakers of horror movies. I don't like Devil's Rejects. I couldn't get into that one. But anyway, well, Halloween, though. Halloween, he, he, um, he, he revises those characters from the beginning, so Loomis becomes a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. And it's cool because you can watch this guy who watched you know Halloween and Halloween 2 when he was a kid, and there's that part in Halloween 2 
where Loomis accidentally runs over that kid dressed as Michael Myers and doesn't even give a shit about it. <laughs> and he can see somebody, you can see like the wheels turning in Rob Zombie's head right, right. So as that, he imagines this new... That went into that pot. Yeah, know. this you know new conception of an old character. Have you seen any of the Halloween movies, Jonah? Nope. Not even the originals, right? No. I, I feel like you would like the first one. Everybody I, likes the first Halloween. I probably I don't, would. I just, I'm not like a big fan of it, but it's it's something that's kind of difficult not to find something in it that you like, you know? I've missed a lot of these horror movies just because I never saw them as a kid because they scared the shit out of me. And so like I've seen a lot of them later in life, like Alien I saw very recently. You're going to be surprised by how many of them aren't that scary. Well, when you watch them now, you that's know? yeah, that's kind of you're gonna be like these what are just I'm movies. <laughs> that's they always got um, reputations that they didn't deserve. I mean, I, Halloween isn't really it's a spook show more than it's you know like a relentless horror beatdown. The it's way like Texas Chainsaw is still terrifying, and it was always gonna be. But Halloween isn't like that. Halloween's sort of a classic slow burn um, Mr. James kind of a ghost story, which is a whole different world, and it's also. What frustrates me a little bit about Halloween and about Rocky is that The Shining is always remembered as the great text on how to do Steadicam, but Halloween and Rocky both came first. And the Steadicam in Rocky and the Steadicam in fucking Halloween is incredible. And what's more imitated than the Steadicam in Rocky? You know what's more imitated? The Steadicam in the beginning of Halloween, that opening sequence. Probably, yeah. That traveling through the whole house murder thing. I mean, that that was a textbook that, you know, nobody had seen anything like that before. And the Rocky thing you see in commercials all the time. Yeah. Pretty much every, you turn on the TV any time of day, you're going to see something from Rocky in that yeah. Steadicam usage. And I love The Shining to death. And I, I, I mean, I just sat here and spoke about how much I love Kubrick for like 20 minutes, but The Shining is not the um, ground zero for great Steadicam that people say it is. I would say Halloween is. Or Rocky. Yeah. But Rob Zombie's Halloweens, um, they the second one has has this moment uh near the beginning where it it doesn't try to outdo any of the other Halloween movies, but it it in its own way finds this really staggering um horror scene. And it's horror not because things are jumping out, but it's horror in this very true way where what's going on is horrible. And I think that's really hard for a slasher movie to do. Halloween 2 is a really interesting movie to me because it's Michael Myers doesn't show up really for like an hour and a half. And most of the movie is about this girl who survived, these two girls who survived the attacks of the first movie trying to get over their like psychological damage from that. So you see these scenes, you know, where they're at these parties and they're like wiling out and they're, you know, yelling at each other and they're with their psychiatrist and everything. And it's, it's really... It's a movie about these people trying to get past grief. I'll have to check one, that one out. And then at the end, through that whole thing, Mike Myers, you can you see him in these short bits coming to town, and it's like he's a fucking hurricane rolling in, you mm. know? You get that real, like, prodigal return feel. Yeah, I got to see that one. Yeah, like, it's not perfect. I mean, there's some basic stuff that's sort of sloppy in it, but when it's good, it's a very good film. All right, so if we're going to steer Jenna into a specific direction... Because she, you say you haven't seen too many horror movies. What what would we put on her plate first? You think? Oh yeah, let me know. The Haunting, the original. Is that I've seen The Haunting of Hill House. Is that the same thing or is that different? Well, The Haunting of Hill House is the book. Did you see the the '60s movie or the movie with Liam Neeson? The movie is just called The Haunting. 
My mother always talks about the 60s movie and how horrifying it was. And then she, and then I think That's I did see the, the remake. Yeah, the remake's awful, awful, awful. I remember film. it being bad. I think that movie's a big part of why people instinctively hate remakes. That one in 99 really just didn't work. But the original, I think, is in a lot of ways um, perfect horror film. Hmm. Perfect film. I liked the remake. <laughs> yeah. I liked Owen Wilson with his uh his little part in the fireplace and all that. Did you see the original? Yeah, but I liked the remake. It, I'm glad somebody does. What do you think of the original? Well, let me talk about the remake. <laughs> the remake is I think the thing that I liked about the remake was that it was this weird time with CGI ghost stuff where they were figuring it out and in each scene where they did that CGI ghost stuff, they were just trying something different to see what fucking stuck. And I like that part. And I yeah. like the weird statue stuff that they did. And it, was took, like, it took until Paranormal before anybody figured out that it just doesn't work. And the yeah. best way to go is just not exactly. do it. Exactly. That was a genius of Paranormal Activity. They're like, just fucking forget it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I like the remake. I'm but glad I'm, somebody does. Yeah, that's me. I'm the guy. <laughs> I'll be signing autographs. Um, <laughs> so wait, so Haunting for Jenna. And then, but if we're going to, go 70s 80s do you think she should start with halloween should she start with friday the 13th or halloween is just so much better than friday or any of the nightmare movies i'm just afraid it'll spoil her for watching the other ones you know where i would start with the 70s stuff dawn of the dead it's a weird it's place to best, start though. it's the best of all of them it's all of the attributes of them and you see what if you put it's you put halloween and uh dawn of the dead together and you have the the sort of like the margins of what you could do with great horror. Mm-hmm. You have this very funny and very grim and very violent and very sprawling satire. And then you have this very focused, serious, bloodless, quiet, you know, two-person stalking film. Yeah, I'd say watch those two, like not back-to-back necessarily, but in the same kind of span of time, I guess. That's a good start off. Okay. 78, both of them. That was a great year for horror. Same year as the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like that. That was See, I see the sci-fi ones. I haven't seen the horror Did you ever see the Blob remake? Oh, yeah. That's a a great great movie. That's probably one of the best horror remakes. Frank Darabont wrote it. Yeah. That was... uh, Some of the best practical effects I've ever seen in a film. That, I think, is one of Darabont's high points. Oh, yeah. So put that one down, too, actually, the the Blob remake. Because that's a great 80s horror practical effects masterpiece was it 80s or was it like early 90s 88 i think yeah it was like that right right at that cusp there's a uh 50s maybe early 60s i think 58 or 59 uh mexican film called caltiki the immortal monster that's a blob knockoff oh nice that movie is fucking awesome i gotta check that out that's a great one it's they find this thing it's like uh, a monster that like i think i haven't seen it in a while but i i remember there was some reference to the mayans like locking it up so they find it in a cave and it like dissolves people's skins and it's just a blob monster. Nice. There's a whole substrata. There's a whole substrata of knockoffs of the 50s monster movies that are usually really worth watching. Like there's a knockoff of a creature from the Black Lagoon called Monster of Piedras Blancas that's just awesome. I love that movie. It's about a monster who lives in a lighthouse and uh the that might lighthouse. be a good list for a smug film. Or... Yeah, I'd put it together. Yeah. The lighthouse keeper feeds him a bucket of fish heads every day to not attack the town. <laughs> and he just like roams this foggy beach. Nice. All right. I think that about wraps it up for today. 
Cody Clark. That's John D'Amico right over there. That's Jenna Ipcar looking at her. She's looking. All right. Now she's looking back. All right. Any final words, final thoughts for everybody? Jenna, final thoughts. Talking about, uh, I guess, sort of a, not really a horror movie, but a little bit, uh, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. That's a great movie. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Yeah. Tony Randall. I don't think I have, yeah. I'll lend it to you because I think you'd love it. Tony Randall plays all of the parts. It's about a traveling circus. (laughs) It's good. That sounds awesome. And it's sort of this kind of a moral movie, you know, like each room has a different, you know, theme and et cetera. And he, he plays all of them and... It's it's a little creepy, but in a good way, and like it's it's a, it's actually a great movie, and considering Tony Randall's playing a like a Chinese sorcerer, surprisingly not racist movie. <laughs> That's impressive. It's you know like it's a little bit it is, but it never it always he always you know keeps his dignity. It's like about the Charlie him. Chad movies. Some of them you're watching, you're like, I'm surprised you're not more racist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so John D'Amico, final thoughts. Final words for the yeah. Year. Keep an eye on uh, Green Brothers. Should be coming out sometime 2015. Definitely 2015, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's awesome. Then you gonna and let us know? You gonna yeah, keep you us updated? Yeah, you gotta keep us abreast. No, I'm absolutely not. This is the last we'll speak on this. Yeah. Right? <laughs> now we'll uh, I'll I'll update you as it goes. All right. See you guys. Everybody say bye. 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 <laughs>